This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. Good morning. Happy Palm Sunday. Welcome to what is uh, officially known as the beginning of Holy Week. This is probably, or not probably, this is the most significant week on the Christian calendar. And it encompasses, as Justin mentioned, Palm Sunday, which was when Jesus went into Jerusalem to shouts of Hosanna, right? People were taking palm branches and they were laying them down before him as he rode in on a, on a donkey and, and they were praising him. This is a mere five days before they would be shouting, crucify him. But it's called his triumphant entry into, into Jerusalem. And then this week encompasses Monday, Thursday, which is the Thursday when Jesus celebrated Passover with his disciples, and he instituted the Last Supper, right, communion that we celebrate. And from that night, he went out into the garden where he prayed, and then he was arrested. And then he went through a trials or several trials throughout the night until Friday is the passion of the Christ, where he was crucified and buried. And then it comes to Sunday, Easter, the empty tomb, right, the promise of new life. So this week is a big week. This week either legitimizes Christianity or shows it to be all foolishness. It's the week that legitimizes and validates Jesus' message and his mission, or it shows him as just someone who taught empty promises and vain vain imaginings. So it's a big week, significant week in Christendom. And my hope for you is wherever you are at, in your spiritual journey, that this would be a powerful week for you. That this would be a week where you would connect to God and and find out if it's real. Find out if it's true. Find out if it's something that you can base your life upon. So I'll be praying for you this week. My name is Bob. If I haven't met you yet, I'm the associate pastor here at New Life. And the guy who more often than not would be speaking to you on Sunday, he's actually out of town with his family at a memorial service for his aunt. Uh, But that didn't keep him on this Big Palm Sunday from speaking to you, at least a little bit. Take a watch. Good morning. This is Pastor Ron. And because I'm in Oregon doing the memorial service for my aunt, I'm unable to be with you. But not to worry. You're in good hands with Bob. I know God's going to deliver a great message through him this morning. There is one thing, however, that I wanted to visit with you about, and that's Good Friday. It's the Friday before Easter, It's coming up in only five days, and it's the day that the entire Christian world has set aside to remember the death of Jesus. In just a couple of minutes, Bob is going to be speaking to you about the meaning of his death and the impact it should have in your life. But for right now, I want to speak with you about a very special worship service, one that we're going to have on that evening right here at New Life. People from more than 12 different congregations in the Petaluma area will be gathering right here for a special service to honor Christ. So I want to challenge you. Take out your your calendar and reserve that evening for the Good Friday service. Even if you've never made participation in a Good Friday service part of your Easter tradition, I want to encourage you to begin that this year. Now mark from 6.30 to 8.30. And right away you ask, why 6.30? Doesn't the nutshell say 7 o'clock? Well, yes, it does, but unlike the Sunday crowd, 
The Good Friday crowd gets here early. So I want you to have a good seat. So come at 6.30, get a good seat, welcome those who have never been to our campus before, and get ready for a very special connection with Jesus. I'll see you here Friday evening. All right, that's a little scary. (laughs) But good. Hey, I'll tell you what, for the last four or five years, my family has been going to the Good Friday service. And it's a wonderful service. It's a very powerful and engaging service. And I, I encourage you to, to make it part of your, uh, your Easter week, um, certainly because we're hosting it. First of all, you're hosting it, so you want to be here to, to welcome people and to engage with people. But it's a significant time, so I encourage you to be here this, this Friday. Um, <clears throat> if you haven't done so yet, let me encourage you to take out your New Life notes. You'll find them in your, in your program. Um, it'll help you to be able to follow along with where we're going or to uh, doodle if you get bored. So if you pull those out. Last week, we began a new series, and it's entitled T-700. And uh, T-700, we borrowed that from NASA, um, which is the idea of their countdown um, procedure, right? They talk about T-60 minus minutes, T meaning time. So it's time minus 60 minutes, and T minus 59 minutes, and, and you get the idea. They count down before the launch. And so why T minus 700? Well, 700 years before Jesus was born, there was this man, a prophet, whose name was Isaiah. And Isaiah talked about the the coming Christ. He talked about Jesus, the Messiah, what he would be like, what he would do, what he would look like, what he would say. 700 years before he would be around. So this series... We're looking at one of those passages from Isaiah. It's the 53rd chapter in the Old Testament of the book of Isaiah. And so we're using this series to lead us up through Easter. We have subtitles for each of these messages. And if you were here last week, Pastor Ron introduced it. And it was a dream is born. Today we'll be talking about a dream dies. And then next week it's a dream lives again. For you see, kind of with every dream, every dream that you have for your life, every hope, every vision, every business plan, if you will, every plan for your family, every hope for your future as you look forward, first the idea is born. It's reached for. But invariably, we hit some kind of roadblock, right? We run into some rough waters. We run smack into a wall. And that dream, that vision, that idea, those plans that we have for our life hit a roadblock, and we experience loss. Oftentimes, we become very disheartened, and our dream dies, or our dreams begin to just kind of fade away. Let me just ask you straight up this morning as we start off. What dream has died in your life? What dream has died in your life? And because of that death of that dream, are you suffering? Suffering maybe in your spirit. Is it a great pain? Debilitating pain maybe? Are you grieving over a loss of a vision that you had for your life that has seemed to disappear? It's now out of reach. You feel like giving up. Maybe it was a debilitating injury that you suffered that killed your dream. Maybe the loss of your home to foreclosure. Maybe financial security that just kind of seemed to evaporate. 
or maybe the loss of a spouse, to death, to divorce, maybe the loss of another significant relationship in your life. Maybe it was a dishonest business partner. Maybe it was the death of a child. All these things happen in our life and all of a sudden our dreams come crashing down around us. And they leave us only with sorrow, despair, hopelessness. Boy, who wants to come to church and talk about this depressing stuff, huh? My goodness. But we have a tagline here at New Life. It's on most of our literature. And it says this. It says, real God, real people, real life. Real God, real people, real life. And basically it means this. If we can't be real about life... If we can't be real with one another, then our God isn't very real. Did you hear that? If we can't be real about life, and if we can't be real with one another, then our God isn't very real. It's it's my hope today that as we're real with God, as we're real with one another, that you'll see and experience just how real God can be in your life and the significant impact and difference that will make for your life. See, how many of you, um, how many of you, when you realize that you're really sick or you have something broken, you'll go see a doctor? Right? Most of you? Yeah, you can just participate. You can just... I guess maybe we don't need global health care if we... No, no, no. Um, on the other hand, okay, most of us, right, when we're really sick or we have something broken, we'll go to the doctor. But let me ask you this. If you're feeling okay, if you're feeling good and everything's working like it's supposed to be working, do you go see a doctor very often? No, of course not. Here's the deal. So often our dreams, the plans that we make for our lives, those dreams that we plan and we work towards, instead of, us, instead of them bringing us to the heart of who we were created to be, instead of bringing us to that place where we experience the most satisfaction and joy and fulfillment in our life, instead, they lead us away from who we were created to be. They lead us away from that spot that we would have the most fulfillment, where we would have the most satisfaction in life. And hear that because it's important for this message. That the dreams that we set up for our life, so often, instead of bringing us to a place of fulfillment, instead take us away from what we were created to be and who we were created to be. And that is namely somebody who lives out their life in relationship with a loving God through Jesus Christ. You see, as much as we hate to admit it, Self-sufficiency and self-reliance more often than not move us away from God. Whereas brokenness and humility allows God to do amazing things both in our own lives and through our lives. See, it's a relationship with God that makes our life significant. It's living out a relationship with God, a life connected with God that makes our life 
meaningful. And that's not only true for you and me, it was true and evident in Jesus' life too. It was through brokenness, humility, loss of a dream that God was able to do amazing things. Let's look at our text for this morning. It's Isaiah 53, and we'll be going through chapter, or verses 3 through 9. Starting with verse 3, it says, He was despised and rejected. Actually, let's just stop right there. Remember, this was written 700 years before Jesus came onto the scene. Right? 700 years before Jesus, the Messiah, right? the one who was coming to rescue everyone, the people who were broken, the people who were in despair, Jesus' mission was a rescue mission to come rescue us. And it says he was despised and rejected. Does that sound like a good place to start? To be despised and rejected from the very people that you were coming to rescue? I don't think so. Isaiah said the Christ, the Messiah who was going to come, the one who was going to come and rescue everyone, he was going to be despised and he was going to be rejected. It certainly sounds like it has some undertones of a dream that's dying. Rejection's not much fun. I remember when I was in high school, I had a good friend and he said, hey, Bob, my, my cousin's coming into town from out of state and I was wondering if you'd be willing to go out with her for one of the evenings to do a kind of a double date thing. And I said, you're talking like a blind date thing. And he said, oh, yeah, but man, she is, she's really sweet. She's got a great personality. And, uh, and I said, yeah. And he goes, no, really. She, and she, she's quite good looking as well, actually, if you're that shallow. And, yeah. So, um, <laughs> but he said, uh, would you go out and do this? And I said, ah, you know, I'm not really into the blind date thing. I just, I just, I think I'm going to pass. And he said, look, because I know what your concern is, but let me tell you. And he goes, this works because I've done it. He says, when you, when you meet her, if you look at her and, and uh, you don't like her personality um, or you're thinking that it's not going to be a good fit, he said, just go, <gasps> and fake an, an asthma attack. <laughs> and then just kind of politely excuse yourself from the evening and you can be out of it. And I said, oh, come on. Okay, so, um, so I do this. So I go and I'm walking up the path and I knock on the door and they open the door and it's actually this girl who opens the door. And I'm looking, I'm going, wow, she does have a nice personality. And uh, <laughs> so I look at her and I, I stumble a little bit and I say, uh, uh, hi, my name is Bob. And she looks at me and goes, <laughs> <laughs> so rejection, it's not much fun. It was the death of a dream, uh, a hope. Oh, childhood. So, Isaiah. This is a terrible passage to read when you're laughing, isn't it? He was despised and rejected. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with the deepest grief. Listen to that last sentence. Acquainted with the deepest grief. Our Jesus, our rescuer. One of my favorite scriptures in the, in the Bible is found in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 4.15, and it says this, This high priest of ours understands our weakness. For he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. 
So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. This high priest is Jesus. His ability to understand us, his desire to love us, his motivation to be gracious to us comes from, at least in part, his experience of sorrow and grief and rejection that he experienced firsthand. He said, I've been there, I've done that, I know your pain, I can identify and understand with you, understand you, and empathize with you. That, my friends, is tremendously good news. That is our hope, that's our comfort as we examine our lives and are real about our hurts and our pains. This is something, an idea, a concept, a principle that you don't want to miss out on in your life as we go through life. What a wonderful and understanding God we had. And because of all this wonderfulness and because of all this love and this grace that he has for us, it's caused everyone just to trust in him and to follow him, right? Look back at our morning scripture. 53.3 says, We turned our back on him and we looked the other way. He was despised and we didn't care. How many of us have turned our backs on God? Saying, No, God, not your way, my way. Say, no, not, not now, God. Maybe later. Forgive him? I don't think so. Love her? Not a chance. Give this? No way. Believe in you, surrender my life to you, call you Lord? No thanks. I mean, I'm sorry for what you went through, but I've got my own life got my own plans. I've got my own dreams and desires. We turned our back on him and we looked the other way. We didn't care. So what did he do? How did he respond to us? Did he shine us on? Did he just turn his back on us? Did he write us off? Did he bail out on his rescue plan? Verse 4 says, Yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sin. He was beaten so that we could be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. Let me stop right here and ask you, do you need to be healed? Do you need to be healed emotionally, physically, mentally, spiritually? Do you need to be healed 
He was pierced for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. This morning, is there a part of your life that needs to be healed? Isaiah goes on. He says, all of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. How's your life? How's it working for you? Your choices, your dreams, are they working for you? Or do you need to be healed? Do you have the desire within your heart to be healed? Do you need to be rescued? The death of a dream, the loss of hope, a mission that apparently failed, right? The Messiah, the Savior, killed on a cross. How could a dead man save the world? How could one who seemed so powerless as he hung upon the cross and was nailed to the cross, how could he do anything? Even his, his enemies were there saying, if you cannot save yourself, how are you going to save anyone else? The death of a dream. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, I know very well how foolish the message of the cross sounds to those who are on the road to destruction. But we who are, on, who, but we who are being saved recognize this message as the very power of God. And that salvation, healing, is available to everyone. I'm going to do something different this morning. And uh, I'm going to read you a story. And it's a story from the Chronicles of Narnia. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And uh, if you're not familiar with the story, there's a couple characters you might need to know. One is a lion named Aslan. There's the witch, and then there's two brothers and sisters, Peter, Edmund, Susan, and Lucy. That was a test. <clears throat> and it's a long section. It's going to take about 15 minutes. But I don't want to just talk this morning. I don't want to intellectualize what Christ accomplished. I want our hearts to hear the message, and I thought maybe this would help. So if you can, relax and listen. Close your eyes if you feel comfortable. The person next to you is snoring, just bend them. Right. 
A few minutes later, the witch herself walked out onto the top of the hill and came straight across and stood before Aslan. The three children who had never seen her before felt shudders running up and down their backs in the sight of her face. And there were growls among the animals present. Though it was a bright, sunshiny day, everyone felt suddenly cold. The only two people present who seemed to be quite at ease was Aslan and the witch herself. It was the oddest thing to see these two faces, the golden face of Aslan and the deep white face of the witch, so close together. Not that the witch ever looked Aslan exactly in the eyes. You have a traitor here, Aslan, said the witch. Of course, everyone present knew that she meant Edmund, but Edmund had gotten past thinking about himself after all that he had been through and after his talk with Aslan that morning. He just went on looking at Aslan. It didn't seem to matter what the witch had said. Well, says Aslan, his offense was not against you. Have you forgotten the deep magic? asked the witch. Let us say that I have forgotten it, answered Aslan gravely. Tell us of the deep magic. Tell you, said the witch, her voice growing suddenly shrill. Tell you what is written on the very table of stone which stands before us. Tell you what is written in letters deep as a spear is long on the trunk of the old wood ash tree. Tell you what is engraved on the scepter of the empire, emperor beyond the sea. You at least know the magic which the emperor put into Narnia at the very beginning. You know that every traitor belongs to me as my lawful prey. And that for every treachery I have the right to kill. And so, continued the witch... That human creature is mine. His life is forfeited to me. His blood, it is my property. Come and take it then, said the bull in a great billowing voice. Fool, said the witch with a savage smile that almost was a snarl. Do you really think that the master can rob me of my right by mere force? He knows the deep magic better than that. He knows unless that I have blood, as the law says, all of Narnia will crumble. And it will perish in fire and in water. It is very true, said Aslan. I do not deny it. Oh, Aslan, whispered Susan in the lion's ear. Can't we, I mean, I mean, you wouldn't, you won't allow her. Can't we do something about the deep magic? Magic? Isn't there something that you can work against it? Work against the emperor's magic, said Aslan, turning to her with something like a frown on his face. Nobody ever made that suggestion. Again, fall back, all of you, said Aslan, and I will talk to the witch alone. They all obeyed. It was a terrible time, this waiting and wondering while the lion and the witch talked earnestly together in low voices. At last, they heard Aslan's voice. You can all come back, he said. I have settled the matter. She has renounced the claim on your brother's blood. And all over the hill there was a noise as if everyone who had been holding their breath had begun to breathe again. And then a murmur of talk amongst them. They began to come back. They began to come back to Aslan's throne. The witch, who was just turning away with a look of fierce joy on her face, when she stopped and she said, But how do I know the promise will be kept? Whoa, said Aslan, half rising from his throne, and his great mouth opened wider and wider as the roar grew louder and louder. And the witch, after staring for a moment with her lips wide apart, picked up her skirt and began to run for her life. As soon as the witch had gone, Aslan said, We must move from this place at once. 
it will be wanted for other purposes. You shall encamp tonight at the fords. Of course, everyone was dying to ask him how he had arranged the matters with the witch, but his face was stern and everyone's ears were still ringing with the sound of the roar, and so nobody dared. The feeling affected Susan so much that she couldn't sleep when she went to bed. And after she had laid there counting sheep and turning back and forth and over and over, she heard Lucy next to her make a long sigh. And she turned in the darkness. Can't you get to sleep either? Asked Susan. No, said Lucy. I thought you were sleeping. I, I say, Susan, what? I have this most horrible feeling as if something were hanging over us. Have you? Because as a matter of fact, so have I, said Susan. Something about Aslan, said Lucy. Either some dreadful thing that he is going, is going to happen to him or some dreadful thing that he is going to do. Well, very quickly, the two girls groped their way among the other sleepers and crept out of the tent. The moonlight was bright and everything was quiet still, except for the noise of the river chattering over the stones. Then Susan suddenly caught Lucy's arm and said, Look, on the far side of the cramp campgrounds, just where the trees began, they saw the lion, slowly walking away from them into the woods. Without a word, they both followed him. He led them up a, street, a steep slope out of the river valley and then slightly to the left, apparently by the very same route that they had used that afternoon coming from the hill of the stone tablet. On and on he led them into the dark shadows and, on onto the, and onto the pale, into the pale moonlight, getting their feet wet with heavy dew. He looked somehow different from the Aslan they knew. His tail and his head hung low and he walked slowly as if he were very, very tired. Then, when they were crossing a wide open place where there was no shadows for them to hide, he stopped and he looked around. It was no good trying to run away, so they came towards him. When they were close, he said, Oh, children, children, why are you following me? We couldn't sleep, said Lucy, and then felt sure that she need say no more and that Aslan knew all that she had been thinking. Please, may we come with you? Wherever you're going, said Susan. Well, said Aslan, and seemed to be thinking. Then he said, I should be glad of company tonight. Yes, you may come, if you will promise to stop when I tell you, and after that, leave me to go on alone. Oh, thank you, thank you, and, and we will, said the two girls. Forward they went on again. One girl walked on each side of the lion, but how slowly he walked. And his great royal head drooped so that now his nose nearly touched the grass. Presently, he stumbled and he gave a low moan. Aslan, dear Aslan, said Lucy, what is wrong? Can you tell us? Are you ill, dear Aslan, asked Susan. No, said Aslan. I am sad and I am lonely. Lay your hands on my mane so that I can feel that you are there and let us walk like that. And so the girls did what they never would have dared to do without his permission, but what that they had wanted to do ever since they first saw him. They buried their cold hands into his beautiful sea of fur and stroked it, so doing walked with him. And presently they saw that they were going with him up to the slope of the hill on which the stone tablet stood. They went up to the side where the trees came farthest up, and when they got to the last tree, it was the one that had the bushes around it, Aslan stopped and said, 
Oh, children, children, here you must stop. And whatever happens, do not let yourselves be seen. Farewell. And both the girls cried bitterly, though they didn't know exactly why. And they clung to the lion and they kissed his mane and his nose and his paws and his great sad eyes. Then he turned from them and he walked onto the top of the hill. And Lucy and Susan, crouching in the bushes, looked after him. And this is what they saw. A great crowd of people were standing all around the stone tablet. And, through the moon, and though the moon was shining, many of them carried torches, which burned with evil-looking red flames and black smoke. But such people, ogres with monstrous teeps, teeth and wolves and bullheaded men, spirits of evil trees and poisonous plants and other creatures that I won't describe, because if I did describe them, the grown-ups probably would not let you read this book. In fact... Here were all those who were on the witch's side and whom the wolf had summoned at her command. And right in the middle, standing on the table, was the witch herself. A howl went up of dismay from the creatures when they first saw the great lion pacing towards them. And for a moment, the witch herself seemed to be struck with fear. Then she recovered herself and gave a wild, fierce laugh. The fool, she cried, The fool has come. Find him. Fast. Lucy and Susan held their breath, waiting for Aslan's roar and to spring upon his enemies. But it never came. Four hags, grinning and leering, yet also at first hanging back and half afraid of what they were to do, had approached him. Find him, I said, repeated the witch. The hags made a dart at him and shrieked with triumph when they found that he made no resistance at all. The others, evil dwarfs and apes, rushed in to help. And between them, they rolled the huge lion onto his back and tied his four paws together, shouting and cheering as if they had done something brave. Though had the lion chosen with one of his paws, he could have, it could have been the death of them all. But he made no noise, even when the enemies, straining and tugging, pulled the cords so tight that they cut into his flesh. They began to drag him towards the stone table. Stop, said the witch. Let him first be shaved. Another roar of mean laughter went up from her followers as the ogre with a pair of shears came forward and squatted down by Aslan's head. Snip, snip, snip went the shears and masses of curling gold began to fall on the ground. Then the ogre stood back and the children watching from their hiding place could see the face of Aslan looking all small and different without a mane. The enemies also saw the difference. Why, he's only a great cat after all, said one. Is that what we were afraid of, said another. And they surged around Aslan, jeering at him, saying things like, Pussy, pussy, poor pussy. And how many mice have you caught today, cat? And would you like a saucer of milk, pussums? Oh, how can they, said Lucy, tears streaming down her cheeks. They are brutes. For now the first shock was over. For now that the first shock was over, the shaven face of Aslan looked to her braver and more beautiful and more patient than ever. Muzzle him, said the witch. And even now as they worked about his face, putting on the muzzle, one bite from his jaws would have cost two or three of them their hands. But he never moved. And this seemed to enrage all the rabble. 
Everyone was now at him. Those who had before been afraid to come near him after he was bound began to find their courage. And for a few minutes, the two girls could not see him. So thick, thick was he surrounded by the whole crowd of creatures kicking him, hitting him, spitting on him, and jeering at him. At last, the rabble had had enough. They began to drag the bound and muzzled lion to the stone table. And pulling and some pulling and some pushing, he was so huge that even when they all had him, it took all of their efforts to hoist him onto the surface of it. Then there was more tying and more spitting and more hitting and more tightening of the cords. The cowards, the cowards, sobbed Lucy. After this and after all, they're still afraid of him even now. When once Aslan had been tied, and tied so tightly and with so massive cords that really all he was was a mass of cords, onto the flat stone a hush fell over the crowd. Four hags holding their torches stood in the corner of the table. The witch, she bared her arms, as she had bared them the previous night when she had held Edmund instead of Aslan. Then she began to wield her knife. It looked to the children with the gleam of the tor- when the green gleam of the torchlight torchlight fell on it, as if the knife was made of stone and not of steel, and it was of a strange, evil shape. At last, she drew near. She stood by Aslan's head. Her face was working and twitching with passion, but his looked up at the sky, still quiet, neither angry or afraid, but a little sad. Then, just before she gave the blow, she stooped down and said in a quivering voice, And now, who has won? Fool, did you think by all this you would save the human traitor? Now I will kill you instead of him, as our pact was said, so that the deep magic will be appeased. But when you are dead, what will prevent me from killing him as well? And who will take him out of my hand then? Understand that you have given me Narnia forever. You have lost and your own life. You have lost your own life and you will not save his. In that knowledge, despair and die. The children did not see the actual moment of the killing. They could not bear to look and they covered their eyes. As soon as the wood was silent again. Susan and Lucy crept out into the open hilltop. The moon was getting low and the thin clouds were passing across her, but still they could see the shape of the giant lion hanging dead, lying dead in his bounds. And down they both knelt into the wet grass and they kissed his cold face and stroked his beautiful fur, what was left of it. And they cried until they could cry no more. And then they looked at each other and held each other's hands for mere loneliness, and they cried again. And then again, they were silent. The death of a dream. Philippians 2.8 And being found in the, appearance, in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death even death on a cross. By his wounds, we are healed. 
In a moment, the worship team is going to come out and they're going to sing us a song. And when they are done, the ushers are going to come forward and they're going to serve communion. And I invite you this morning to take communion in a, in a special attitude, a special act of reverence. And as you hold the cup, which represents the life of Christ that was given, and as you hold the bread, which represents his body that was broken so that we could be healed, acknowledge to God your need for God. Ask God to come and touch your life and to bring healing. Surrender your life. Surrender your hurts and your pains and receive from him comfort and love. I invite anybody who would like to this morning today to take communion. But if you choose not to, that's fine. When the tray comes, just pass it on to the person next to you. But as you hold the cup and as you hold the bread, think on his sacrifice. Think on his love. Think on his ability to identify with you because of his suffering. Think about his healing that he can provide for you because of his death. When you're ready, drink from the cup and eat the bread. And then I'll come back out and close this up. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our sins. Punishment that brought us peace was upon
transgressions crushed for our sins. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, by his wounds we are
So how can God take a situation? A situation that looks so hopeless. A dream that has died. A life that is broken. And make it live again. How can God take a life, your life, my life, so far from what it was originally meant to be and to heal it and to restore it? Well, that's the message of Easter. It's the message of next week. The message of new life. The message of a dream that lives again. But I want to leave us with this verse this morning. Romans 4.25, he, he was handed over to die because of our sins. And he was raised from the dead to make us right with God so that we can dream and live again. We'll see you next week. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your message. God, your message of sacrifice, the message of love, the message of forgiveness and the message of healing. God, I pray that we would be able to be real with you and real with one another and allow the real power of your spirit to come and to transform us, God, to make us new, to make us alive. God, I pray that this week would be a significant week for all of us as we engage with you. God, as we read your word, as we read about this last week, as we watch the passion of the Christ, as we come to the Good Friday service, as we come to Easter service, God, that we would be moved deep within our heart and your dream would come alive in us. In Jesus' name. Wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information, at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.